How good are you at keeping to deadlines? How good are you at keeping to deadlines? Are you a procrastinator with no timetable targets? Or are you a planner with decisive due dates? Are you a laid-back, last-minute ad-libber? Or an edgy engineer type who loves Microsoft Excel? Well, I won't tell you which camp I fall into, although I can see from some of your smiles that you already know. But let me at least share with you that my interest in this subject matter caused me to stumble across the iPhone application deadline, a popular app on the Apple Store website, which has received some rave reviews. Highly motivating, says James Coe. It really makes me think, says Sunset Junction. Seeing your time tick down by the second really makes you want to do something about it, says Brian. For the deadline app simply requires you to plug in your information, the, the type of person you are, the kind of busy lifestyle that you lead, and at the end, you get your own personal due date. Except the due date given is not actually the due date for that college essay, or the due date for those tax forms, or the due date for that scary work presentation that you must give at the end of the year. But rather, the Apple app deadline is the due date they give you for the date of your death. And so upon discovering that this was not the productivity app that I thought it was, <laughs> but rather the health and fitness app, I decided not to download it. But ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I wonder about you. Would you download Deadline? Would you want to know your predicted due date? For the fitness freaks amongst us, perhaps you'd, you'd download it to persuade yourself that your, your due date is way off. For the rest of us, perhaps we'd pass at Deadline, fearing that it's closer than we'd like to imagine. But either way, the truth, of course, as the one-star ratings of the app remind us, is that nobody really knows their due date. There is a due date for everyone in this room. Death is coming. Death is due. As George Bernard Shaw wrote, one out of one die, it is the ultimate statistic. And yet, no statistic-gathering iPhone app can fully prepare us for that ultimate statistic, which is why everyone in this room tonight need not pick up their phones to download Deadline, but rather why everyone in this room tonight must pick up the pages of the historical first-century eyewitness accounts of three deaths of three men. And so my friends, if you put down your order of service, please do pick it up again. And do turn with me to that passage that, that Jennifer just read for us. Because just for 20 minutes or so, we're simply going to walk through three paragraphs about three deaths that I believe will prepare us for our own. And to help us in our understanding of them, I've given us three headings for each of those three paragraphs. And the first of which, again, reminds us that death is due. Death is due. For in verses 32 to 34, we see that indeed death it is due for three people. But in the first paragraph, that the camera zooms in on the person of Jesus. For it is clear that Jesus' due date is now. For images of death are all around him. Can you see that? 
Two criminals are led away with him to die. And Jesus comes to the place of the skull. And there he is crucified. And no doubt at that moment, all three men knew that this day would be their last. And yet the man that Luke's camera zooms in on first has clearly known his due date much longer. For Jesus seemingly knows everything about his final moments. For Jesus has spent his last few months predicting his death on a cross and in Jerusalem. For Jesus has spent his whole life proclaiming that he was God's promised king. And Jesus, knowing all of the prophecies about himself, knows everything about this due date. For in these verses, we read of three, three striking details. Verse 32, he is nailed to a cross. Verse 33, he dies between two criminals. Verse 34, lots are then cast to divide his clothes, which seem like three random historical details at first until you understand that these details are steeped in biblical prediction about God's promised king. For almost a thousand years beforehand, in Psalm 22, we read about God's promised king in whose hands and feet will be pierced who would be accompanied by evildoers at his death and whose garments would be gambled for at his end. Indeed, since Jesus knows, he knows every detail of his death, he asks his heavenly father, verse 34, to forgive those who do not know what they do. And so amid all the chaos of what we've read, amid all the chaos of Jesus' kangaroo court and of evil rule and of sudden and impulsive execution and everything seemingly so out of control, the man in the middle, raised up in death, clearly stands over it all. Death is due. And the two men either side of him see it coming now. But only the Son of God had planned every detail of their due dates to the very minute. You know, when we used to live uh, in London as a family, I used to play a game with my two uh, eldest children where we'd guess when the 391 bus was due. Uh, we'd wait together as a three by the dry cleaners. Uh, my seven-year-old son at the time uh, on my right and my five-year-old daughter on my left, and, and then I'd let them guess. And as they were busy predicting, uh, two minutes, 17 minutes, two hours, uh, whatever it was, I'd stealthily glance at my phone and at the GPS tracking London bus app, <laughs> which told me exactly when the 391 bus was due. And then I'd smile at them both, and I'd make my perfect, always right dad prediction. <laughs> and why would I do that? Well, I confess it was rather mischievous, but, but honestly, it was because I wanted my two eldest children either side of me to trust. Now, you might say that made me less trustworthy, <laughs> and that may be true. But in an uncertain world, I wanted them to know that the one who loved them the most was in control, because Dad knew all the details of their life. Dad knew when things would do, and they need not fear. And friends, how much more so with the Lord Jesus? As he stood between those two little people, one on his right, one on his left, who knew very little of this tragic day, when he knew all the details of it, 
so that he could be totally trusted in it. For he had no, no need of any iPhone app for these due dates because he was sovereign over all things. His death had been planned by him for over a thousand years. In fact, even before the creation of the world, he knew his due date. He knew their due date. And friends, he knows your due date and mine. In these verses, we're reminded that death is due. Death is coming. And ordinary people, like you and me, don't know the details, but wonderfully, Jesus always does. And maybe in light of all that has gone on in the last few days in our city, tonight that is what you need to be reminded of most in this passage. That in this uncertain, fear-inducing world of evil, in this world where we don't know our due date, we have one who holds our hand by the side of the road and knows exactly when our bus will come to take us home. Death is due. And wonderfully, Jesus stands sovereign over it all. However, there's another sense. There's another sense in this passage in which death is due. And I wonder if you can spot it there in verse, um, the third paragraph. For can you see in verse 41 that the second criminal not only sees that his, his death is due, that death is an adjective, his death is due, his death is coming, but this man also sees death is due as a noun. His death is due. His death is what he owes. For what does the second criminal say? Look at verse 41. We are justly receiving the due reward for our deeds. You see, this criminal correctly sees not only the the, the destined nature of death, but also the deserved nature of death. And so after paragraph, after paragraph, after paragraph of lies from evil men, finally one evil man tells the truth. And he says, my death is my due. Justice is being served here. I have sinned in the most grievous way. I've rebelled massively against the law and my deeds require recompense and the just payment is my death. Death is what I owe. Death is due. And friends, that's what the Bible says of all of us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin are death. Death is the cost because of our sin. Death is the compensation for our sin. Death is the consequences of our sin. Sometimes death is the direct consequence of our sin. We commit horrific sin and we die. Most times death is the indirect consequence of our sin. We live in a sinful world with sinful people in it and we all contribute to the sinfulness of humanity And so eventually all humans die. And so although we may not have committed exactly the same crimes as this honest criminal here next to Jesus, in our most honest moments, we know that our deeds must be dealt with. We know death is what we owe. For deep down, we know that if God is good enough to justly punish every deed done against us, he must justly punish every deed done by us. In our best moments, we know that we do not deserve to live forever. For every person, death is due. Except, 
Except as we've seen from our readings tonight, that that's not quite true, is it? For there was one whose death was what was not due in that sense. For in the same way that Pilate says in verse 15, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So the second criminal also says in verse 41, but this man Jesus has done nothing wrong. Death was not due for Jesus in that way. And everybody knew it. Jesus had no wages to pay for. In him there was no sin. So why does Jesus die? Well, the answer is seen on every page of his life. From his initial naming in Matthew chapter 1, you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. To the end of his teaching ministry in John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends and to his final plea here, Father, forgive them. Jesus has a due date because he receives the due for our deeds. For in his lamentable death, Jesus Christ, I am saving from sin. And in his life laid down, Jesus Christ, I will love my friends. And in his very last deed, Jesus Christ, Father, forgive them because I am paying what is due to them. And so can you see, everyone will die one day but not everyone will be hit with that eternal death and God's forever wrath at sin upon unpaid deeds. For through Jesus' death payment, we may be saved. And so if we're seeing, if we're seeing through this first camera angle that, that Luke presents to us, if we're seeing through that, that camera lens rightly, we not only see that our death is due and that Jesus stands sovereign over it, but we see that our death is due and that Jesus sacrificially saves from it. And so my primary appeal to all here this evening is please, please do not just find relief in Jesus' death because of his serenity and his sovereignty over it, but please receive Jesus' death for your sins. Don't look down Luke's historical camera and then decide to pay for your deeds yourself later when you meet God at death. Don't leave this place tonight uncertain about this salvation when death is due. Because as we see next, it's very easy to do that, isn't it? Well, this is not the only camera angle we get. Well, if you look down with me to verse 35 in that second paragraph, you'll see that Luke's camera pans away from the saving Christ and to the scoffing crowd. Second summary point for the second paragraph, salvation is scoffed at. Salvation is scoffed at. Picture the scene again with me. Blood runs down a wooden cross as the man upon it cries, Father, forgive them. Forgiveness is being painfully birthed by Jesus on this due date of due dates. And yet the crowd ridicules his saving in ironic jest. Verse 35, the rulers scoffed at him saying he has saved others, let him save himself. Verse 36, the soldiers mocked him also saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Verse 39, one of the criminals railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The irony is thicker than any Shakespearean comedy. 
And yet the most sarcastic actors on God's own stage fail to see the folly of their own lines. Jesus is not saving himself precisely so he can save them. And yet the religious rulers and the military men and a crucified criminal, they all fail to grasp hold of this salvation on offer. And instead they ridicule him and they reject him. And why? Why do some scoff at the the salvation on offer here? Why might some still snub Jesus even this very evening? Well, just for a minute, let's see if we can work it out together that the reason for each group's laughter, for the first to scoff are the religious rulers. Can you see that there? And what do the religious rulers say of Jesus? Well, like the rest, they, they scoff at his ability to save. But notice that they do that because Jesus has been a disappointment. For in verse 35, what did Jesus look like to them? Well, Jesus was just some guy who saved others. Verse 35, he saved others, they snicker. He saved sinners, they sneer. He saved people unlike us, they swagger. In summary, we don't need a Jesus who saves from sin because we're just not that sick. Why would the chosen need a chosen one? We are people of religion, morals, and good standing in our local community. We give plenty enough to social charities and we go to plenty enough spiritual ceremonies. And friends, could that be you tonight? You've come to another Good Friday service. But could it be that your annual pilgrimage here is primarily to remind you that you are good? And so you sit and you you appreciate the solemnity of it all, but silently you scoff at the idea that Jesus is saving you. Because that kind of Jesus, well, he saves others. Those who perhaps do not have enough self-worth, those who perhaps struggle with guilt and shame, but, but not you. The religious rulers scoff because they're not looking for a Jesus who'll save them. But what are the second? What are the second to scoff? What do the military men say? Well, like the rest, they scoff at Jesus' ability to save, but again, notice that they do so because they too are disappointed in Jesus. For what did Jesus look like to them? Well, verse 36, Jesus was a feeble leader. Jesus was someone who who should have been able to save himself. For verse 36, if if he really was a king, a mighty military man just like them, a man worthy of following as a commander-in-chief, then he would not have died like this. And again, maybe that is you this evening. Maybe you're someone who just tells it straight. Maybe you're not religious. But, but if you were, then it, it certainly wouldn't be a religion like this, where a lowly carpenter dies on a cross. For in this naturalistic dog-eat-dog world, you think a savior would save by flexing his muscles and ruling and not by stretching out his arms and dying. And so like the religious, you sit and you appreciate the solemnity of tonight, but silently you too scoff at the idea of a king who would save like this. 
The military men scoff because they're not looking for a Jesus who will save like this. But again, they're not the only scoffers, are they? For the final scoffer to reject Jesus, the second dying person that that Luke's camera now pans in on is the first criminal. And again, just like the the rulers and the soldiers, uh, the scoffing comes because of a great disappointment in Jesus. But with this man, his rejection is not driven by who Jesus is saving, nor is his rejection driven by how Jesus is saving, but rather his rejection is driven by what Jesus is saving for. Because what does he want Jesus to save him for? He wants to be saved for a life without pain and nails. He wants to be saved for revenge against his executors. He wants to be saved for more time with his family, perhaps. He wants to be saved for another day in this world. Save yourself and us. He spits through clenched teeth. But when he sees that Jesus is not savior for this life, that Jesus is not going to save him from the Romans, that, that, that Jesus is not going to save him for his best life now, he rejects Jesus and he joins the ridicule. And friends, if you too have come tonight looking for a Jesus who will save you for better health, who will save you for, for the better marriage and, and the better kids, who will save you for the better job and the better house, who will save you for the kingdom of this world, then you too may not only be disappointed with Jesus, but maybe you will start to scoff at his salvation too. Because although Jesus may save you from today's pain, he does not finally promise to save you from suffering here. As many of you know, last Monday, all three of my children were unfortunately at Covenant School where there was a mass shooting. And thankfully, all three of my children were saved. And I thank the Lord Jesus for his saving of them. And I pray that I get many more years with them. But not all Covenant fathers got that news last week. Indeed, as I grieved with one father a few days ago at his child's funeral, I may have expected him to similarly say, just like the first criminal, through clenched teeth, why did you not save my child and me for this life now? If you stand sovereign over death, Lord Jesus, why not? Are you not the saving son of God? I used to think you were. But amazingly, though through tears, that father did not scoff as he suffered, nor did he express any disappointment at his savior. Instead, on the contrary, amid incredible suffering, he praised Jesus Christ as he spoke of his saving work that we read about here because he had believed in the real Lord Jesus Christ. And he was not disappointed in the real salvation that he had brought about. He trusted before Monday and he trusted after Monday in the saving Lord Jesus. 
in one who did not ultimately promise to save his child for this life now, but one who came to save them for eternal life to come. And just like that father, in our last paragraph, someone else who suffers starts to see that too. For in the final paragraph of our passage, we see paradise is promised. Paradise is promised. And to whom is it promised? Well, it is promised to the other dying criminal. And a man who is the very opposite of all the scoffers. For this man is not like the religious rulers, is he? The religious rulers say, I do not need saving for paradise. My deeds are good enough for eternity. I have enough spiritual air miles for heaven. I do not deserve to die and face God's judgment. But the criminal says, verse 41, I do. I am receiving the due reward for my deeds. I am a sinner and I am in need of saving. Jesus, what you save me. And this man is not like the military men, is he? The military men say, I will not be saved by this pathetic man. I will not raise my sword to a king like this. But the criminal says, verse 41, I will. I'll bow down to a king like this who dies on a cross. Jesus, when you remember me, when you come into your kingdom. And finally, this man is not like the other criminal, is he? The first criminal says, I I want to be saved for this world. I want to be saved for the kingdom of today. But this man says, verse 41, I don't. I want to be saved from this world. I want to be saved for your kingdom of tomorrow. Jesus, when you remember me, when you come into your kingdom. Your man's words are so blunt, so simple. And yet they powerfully cut against every world religion and worldly philosophy and every worldly pride and, and worldly power and against every focus on a perfect world here and now. And this, this humble confession of his own sin and guilt and this humble acknowledgement of Jesus' kingship and this deep desire to be saved for what is to come, what does that get him? Does Jesus say to him, I'm sorry, it's too late. You've run out of time. There is not enough time for you to do enough good deeds for me. I'm sorry, it's too late. You're pinned to a cross now. You cannot even lift your arms in worship. I'm sorry, it's too late. You're about to die. You cannot experience the benefits of life in me. No. Final words of Jesus to another in Luke's gospel. Final words in our passage. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Those who confess their guilt to their Savior now are promised salvation. Those who bow the knee to the true king now are promised his kingdom soon. And those who hope for heaven with him now are promised that they will immediately go with him into paradise when they die. And friends, that is what the criminal did on his unforeseen due date with his fleeting breath and is what you and I must do before we die, before it is too late.
for Jesus' certain promise to those who publicly profess him, who are tired of sin and death in this current kingdom, is the certainty of the kingdom without either. Those who remember Jesus in life before they die will be remembered by Jesus in eternal life when they die. And so those who will be remembered by him remember his work on this day and they rejoice in it. And the way in which such people remember and thus identify with the second criminal and thus recall Jesus' certain promise of his kingdom to come is remembering the way that Jesus told us to remember. And so in a moment, we're going to close our service by taking the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper was a meal that Jesus instituted just before his death to help us to remember his salvation for our paradise. The meal pictures his saving blood poured out in the cup. And the meal pictures his body broken for us in the bread. And again, this meal is not for the religious, not for those confident in their own morality. It is not for the mighty. It is not those for, who are confident in their own power. It is not for those who want Jesus for a better life now. Rather, it is a meal for criminals. Those who accept their guilt and admit their sin. Those who bow the knee to King Jesus and repent. Those who eat and drink and look forward to that time when he will come again. And so friends, let me be clear. If that is wonderfully you, if that is wonderfully you, if you trust Jesus Christ as your savior and your king, if you have publicly professed faith just like that criminal, if you're part of Jesus' family, this church, or with another church that preaches this, this same good news, and you're allowed to take the Lord's Supper there, then you're more than welcome to join us tonight. Uh, pick up a double cup uh, just like this as they are passed around in a moment. But listen, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't really see yourself in that second criminal. You're just visiting perhaps, or you're not part of any church. They were honestly so glad, so glad that you're here. But the Bible warns that this meal is not for you. And if that's you, then please don't feel any embarrassment at all as the elements are quietly passed around by our ushers. Just pass them on to the person next to you and use this time to reflect upon our next song, which we shall remain seated for. My song is love unknown. My song is love unknown. My Savior's love to me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake, my Lord should take frail flesh and die.